DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. Dr. Lewis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Dr. Lewis is also the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lewis, we reflect on the writings of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, entitled The Last Retreat, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We now continue our conversation on Day 7 of Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity's Last Retreat. Celi and Arendt Glorium Dei This is what the heavens are telling, the glory of God. Since my soul is a heaven in which I live while awaiting the heavenly Jerusalem, this heaven too must sing the glory of the Eternal, nothing but the glory of the Eternal. Day to day passes on this message. All God's lights, all His communications to my soul are this day which passes on today the message of His glory. The command of the Lord is clear, sings the psalmist, enlightening the eye. Consequently, my fidelity in corresponding with each of his decrees, with each of his interior commands, makes me live in his light. It too is a message which passes on his glory. But this is the sweet wonder. Yahweh he who looks on you is radiant, the prophet exclaims. The soul that by the depth of its interior gaze contemplates its God through everything in that simplicity which sets it apart from all else is a radiant soul. It is a day that passes on today the message of his glory. Night to night announces it. How very consoling that is. My weaknesses, my dislikes, my mediocrity, my faults themselves tell the glory of the eternal. My sufferings of soul or body also tell the glory of my master. David saying, how shall I make a return to the Lord for all the good he has done for me? This, I will take up the cup of salvation. If I take up this cup, crimsoned with the blood of my master, and in holy joyous thanksgiving, I mingle my blood with that of the holy victim, it is in some way made infinite and can give magnificent praise to the Father. 
Then, my suffering is a message which passes on the glory of the Eternal. Elizabeth of the Trinity invites us to see a particular dimension of night. John of the Cross, when he talked about night, he mainly was concerned about the purifying effects of night. He was also concerned about the encounter with Jesus that happens in the night, and that really can't happen in any other way until the Lord leads us into the night. This one kind of touches on what Elizabeth is bringing out. Elizabeth develops this a little bit more, and in her theology of night, the night I undergo in terms of my sufferings, in terms of entering into experiences that are very difficult that I don't understand, both exteriorly and interiorly in my heart, these experiences can become a moment of deep identification and unity with Christ if I by an act of faith, choose to endure this suffering, this hardship, as a participation in Christ's work of redemption. When I do that, Christ is extending his redemptive mystery through me. Uh, theologians call this participatory mediation, uh, participating in Christ's work of mediating. Mediating what? Mediating the work of salvation to humanity so that humanity can find the Father. And, and so when we apply that here, Elizabeth is saying, for the soul that is suffering right now, either physically or mentally, this physical or mental or spiritual or psychological suffering that is being undergone, if it is submitted to Christ Jesus in faith, Jesus will unite this to his own suffering. He will take the blood that you are pouring out figuratively or maybe quite literally and unite it to his blood that was poured out for the glory of the Father. And he will use your suffering to do something beautiful in the church. So it's a, a very powerful uh, image of this difficult experience we can have in the spiritual life when we don't understand what God is doing and why he's letting us or a loved one suffer the way they are. Is that also connected with what St. Paul would tell us about how we make up what's lacking in the suffering of Christ? Yes, and in fact, on the sixth day, that was the very last thing we thought about together. In paragraph 16 on the sixth day, she had already told us what a going out from self this applies, what a death. Let us say with St. Paul, I die daily. The great saint wrote to the Colossians, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then she goes on. O blessed death in God, O sweet and gentle loss of self in the beloved being, which permits the creature to cry out, I live no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in this body of death, I live in the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So to live in faith of the Son of God means to 
believe in what he did and seek to configure our lives or to allow our lives to be configured to what he did. And what did he do? He gave himself up for me. He loved me and gave himself up for me. So what does that mean we need to do with our lives? We need to love God and give ourselves up for him. And in this paragraph that we just looked at, uh, paragraph 18 in the seventh day, she's saying that you can do this not only with the great works that you do, but you can do this with your weaknesses and with your dislikes and with your mediocrity and with your faults. Even your faults can become an occasion in which you learn to die to yourself uh, and live for Christ, which means to love, to love Christ, and to love those Christ has entrusted to you, and to give yourself up for Christ and for those Christ has entrusted to you. So it's a powerful and very consoling thing. In Christianity, it's not our great feats where our faith is accomplished, where God's glory is manifest. It's actually in our failures and when we fall short. In the midst of the faults and the falling short and the things we dislike and the hardships, choosing to love God. That's the beauty, the greatness of our religion, is that anything can happen, but by faith, nothing can stop us from receiving the love of God and receiving that love of God, becoming a a beacon of, of hope and of love for others. Should we go into the third paragraph at this point? Yeah, this last one kind of is, in a certain sense, kind of the punchline to this reflection. This whole reflection is very, very dense and focused and leads to this crescendo that we have in paragraph 19. So, So she's talked about first kind of the spiritual consolations and the way God can communicate to us, invite us to do things that allow his radiant light to shine forth in our lives. And then she has already told us about how God works through our weaknesses. As long as we submit these weaknesses to him, as long as we suffer these weaknesses, these faults, these dislikes, in faith, in faith for what Christ has done for us. And then do you see whether it's day or night, what are we doing? We're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. So where do we find Jesus? And that's what she answers in this 19. There, in the soul that tells his glory, he has pitched a tent for the sun. The sun is the word, the bridegroom. If he finds my soul empty of all that is not contained in these two words, his love, his glory, then he chooses it to be his bridal chamber. He rushes in like a giant racing triumphantly on his course, and I cannot escape his heat. He is this consuming fire which will affect the blessed transformation of which St. John of the Cross speaks when he says, Each seems to be the other, and the two are but one. A praise of glory of the Father. There, in the soul that tells his glory, he has pitched a tent for the sun. So again, this comes from Psalm 18. Where? In the soul that tells his glory. What soul tells his glory? 
the soul that says yes to all his interior commands and his words and his consolations and his communications, the soul that says yes in the midst of its sufferings and its dislikes and its weaknesses and its mediocrities and, and its faults, the soul that suffers but in suffering chooses to love, this is the soul that tells the glory of God night and day. Blessed Elizabeth is saying, this is exactly where Jesus the sun, the, the radiant uh, sun who gives off light and warmth, but also the son of the father. This is where Jesus has chosen to dwell. The son is the word, the bridegroom. If he finds my soul empty of all that is not contained in these two words, his love, his glory, then he chooses it to be his bridal chamber. He rushes in like a giant, racing triumphantly on his course. And I cannot escape his heat. He is the consuming fire, which will affect the blessed transformation of which St. John of the Cross speaks when he says, Each seems to be the other, and the two are but one. A praise of glory of the Father. This paragraph speaks about the reality of identification with Christ. When we are obedient to the words, the lights that God gives us, and we're obedient to those words, even as we're in suffering all kinds of different darkness and hardships, we become a place where the Lord can dwell with us, remain with us in ever more, in ever more life-giving ways. The son who pitches his tent in such a heart, Elizabeth of the Trinity, says he's the word. The word of who? The word of the Father. This word spoken from all eternity, the word whom, for whom the Father calls beloved, the Father entrusts into such a heart. And the way the Father entrusts this word into the heart of those who are faithful to him is in the form of a bridegroom. He comes offering the full gift of himself, his faithful love that will never be revoked is offered to such a soul. And the soul, by being offered this gift, has the possibility of making the full gift of itself to the bridegroom, to become the bride of Jesus' heart. What Elizabeth of the Trinity is talking about then in terms of identification with Christ She's talking about such a mutual possession and friendship that everything Christ is about belongs to the soul, and everything the soul is about belongs to Christ Jesus. And they so totally mutually possess each other that they are as one, a praise of God's glory, the praise of God's glory. And so this line by St. John, St. John of the Cross, loved the idea of the lover and the beloved being transformed into each other. Each seems to be the other, and the two are but one. He has a very uh, beautiful lines along this line in his poem, The Dark Night, uh, where the two hearts have given themselves so over to the other that each belongs to the other. And marriage, Christian marriage, is supposed to be a sign of this. Husbands and wives are supposed to so totally give the gift of themselves to the other that they become, has one flesh. 
the conjugal embrace is a sign of that mutual self-gift. But uh, people who've been married for a little while know that that gift is more than just the sign that is realized in the, the conjugal embrace. In fact, in a beautiful married friendship love, each wants to anticipate the needs of the other. Each wants to be the joy of the other, and and each wants the other to enter into the fullness of joy, and each wants to sacrifice everything in a faithful love so that the fullness of joy can belong to the bride, to the bridegroom. That's the way they live together. Now, in our individual marriages, we may sometimes realize this a little bit more than at others, but as we strive to do this, we are signifying a reality in the church. And what's the reality in the church? Well, this is the way Jesus loves the church, and this is the way Jesus loves each individual soul. And so if we live live our marriages well, we're pointing to the same reality that Blessed Elizabeth is trying to help us see here. And that reality is that if we order our lives to make room for Jesus to come into our heart, he will come into our hearts in such a way that he will never leave because his faithful love for us is so great. And when he comes into us that way, we realize the fullness of who we're meant to be, just like spouses in their mutual love realize the fullness of who they're meant to be as husband and wife. We realize who we are meant to be when we welcome the word into our hearts and when we receive him like the bridegroom who's coming for us because he's poured out everything for us, because he's loved us and he's laid down his life for us, we want to love him and lay down our life for him. Heart speaks to heart. And this is the reality Blessed Elizabeth is, is inviting us to enter into. It's a, a profound reality of, of deep prayer, but a reality of deep prayer that, that extends through our whole life and our whole existence. She's really calling us to look at death and to come in a different paradigm uh, to pass through it, isn't she? And I'm not just talking about death to the body, but I mean, death period. And that's a subject we just, ooh, that is a, that's a word we don't like to approach. I think so. And I, and I think because we don't like to approach it and we don't really talk about death as we ought to, our, our culture has a lot of uh, weird ideas about death. Death is a kind of escape. And death is a, a scary thing. Death hurts. And part of our being, an instinct for self-preservation, directs us to try to preserve ourselves against death. But you are right. Blessed Elizabeth is encouraging us to find the faith that is not afraid of death. She's encouraging us to find the faith that um, stands firm in its love and, it, and in its faithfulness in death and finds in even death itself just another opportunity to more fully and more perfectly love. The fathers of the church, in fact, used to say that fear of death is a sign of lack of faith. And Elizabeth of the Trinity, I think you're right, in this passage is speaking right into that fear and inviting us to, instead of being afraid, to have faith. I think in that type of death that she's been leading us on all these days is that dying to ourselves and trusting in the bridegroom. And that's something that can be mirrored in our understanding 
of uh, the sacrament of marriage, but also in those relationships, the consecrated religious, and as well as those who are called to holy orders, that they are to ideally enter in, they're dying to their self, they're giving themselves over and trusting Christ in the other to care for them and to love them. I think that's very much true, and and in fact, anyone who looks at celibacy or the vow of chastity has a way of avoiding intimacy will probably not be able to be faithful to the promise or the vow that they make in that regard. For Christians, you only take that vow and you only make that promise to avail yourself to a new kind of intimacy with Christ and with his church, an intimacy that anticipates Uh, that is a eschatological sign, a sign of things to come is what that means, a sign that anticipates what our resurrected life will be when on the last day and the trumpet sounds and we rise from the dead, what will our life be like then? I don't know for sure, but if priests and religious are living out their, their lives well, and I think especially contemplative religious, and especially religious women, which is to whom Elizabeth of the Trinity is writing this work, if they will live out their chastity well in intimacy with Christ, and the kind of intimacy that they're supposed to have with one another in their community, and by that a chaste intimacy, an intimacy in which you can enter into each other's hearts so that we can help each other find Christ, Those who will do that are a living sign, this is John Paul II, a living sign of the world to come. They give us a sense for what's awaiting us. Even though we don't know exactly what it is, somehow in those communities we get a little glimpse of it. And that little glimpse is so beautiful and so precious, it's worth someone spending their whole life so that the church can be enlivened by, strengthened by, encouraged by that little glimpse these communities offer. These offerings of people's lives make known to the church. And by making it known, I'm not saying most contemplatives, ironically, live completely hidden lives. We don't even know who they are. And yet they're there and they're doing it. And the glimpse they provide to the church isn't like a public manifestation, look at me. The glimpse they provide to the church is is a very hidden very beautiful, very rich glimpse. Uh, but it's a glimpse that we need renewed in our time. And Elizabeth is is encouraging in this paragraph, I interpret it to try to extend it into the lives of the lay faithful, of whom I'm a member. But in a very special way, she's not really writing this to members of the lay faithful. We're not her first audience. Her first audience is contemplative nuns, her sisters in religion who are struggling with their vocations and being patient with each other and struggling with the things that Christ is asking of them. And she understands these struggles and she's trying to she's trying to speak to those struggles. And she's trying to say, in the midst of these struggles, the wonderful things Jesus asks you to do that are sometimes difficult, and the suffering and the hardships and the inadequacies and the faults, in the midst of it all, This is where Jesus pitches his tent. This is where he chooses to dwell, to rest with us. What is required in our part, then, is the receptive kind of faith 
that welcomes him. And I believe that the great contribution of, in particular, women contemplatives in our time is that they witness what it means to completely and radically open up their hearts and welcome the word. And when they do that, what Elizabeth says is true. Each seems to be the other, and the two are but, but one. Word and soul become a praise of glory. Mm, incredible. Any final thoughts on this particular day, Anthony? This particular day, the, the focus of it and the richness of it, I, I was thinking as I was preparing for this, about how God speaks to us even through creation. The psalmist in Psalm 18 is aware of days and nights. He's a biblical man who understands the world through the eyes of Genesis, in which God has created light and darkness, and in which he's established nights and days. And the biblical man isn't a material man. A material person thinks everything that really is is just material. For the biblical person, material things point to invisible things, visible uh, spiritual things. Visible things and invisible things are kind of related together. And Elizabeth of the Trinity kind of shows us here that she has entered into this logic of the sacred scriptures where she has begun to see the visible material world in terms of invisible spiritual categories. And she's inviting us to share the same vision with her and the reason why she invites us to do this is so that we do not lose hope, so that uh, we'll be moved to the kind of faith that welcomes the Word. And in welcoming the Word, allow the Word to transform who we are so that we can become the praise of glory. So I find it just a very beautiful and rich text. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. And I, I hope these words uh, are an encouragement. I'd say they're a praise of glory. Amen. There, in the soul that tells his glory, he has pitched a tent for the sun. The sun is the word, the bridegroom. If he finds my soul empty of all that is not contained in these two words, his love, his glory, then he chooses it to be his bridal chamber. He rushes in like a giant racing triumphantly on his course, and I cannot escape his heat. He is this consuming fire which will affect the blessed transformation of which St. John of the Cross speaks when he says, Each seems to be the other, and the two are but one. A praise of glory of the Father. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join me next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.